Hello and welcome to the Modern Musclehead Podcast. This is Scott Tuzana of MetabolicMasterpiece.com along with Brian Cron of BrianCron.com. Today we are joined by a special guest, Mike T. Nelson, fat loss coach. Today he's going to be talking about metabolic flexibility and metabolic adaptation. So we got an incredible, exciting show. You're going to want to listen into this for sure. As always, we start our calls off by talking about our training, how it's been the past week, any changes changes to our programming and how our body has responded. So Brian, my man, welcome to the call. Great to have you here as always. And um, curious to see how your training has gone this week. Well, man, as as I announced last week, I'm officially in like a fat loss mode. So, you know, no slow and steady for me this time. I've, I've jumped in both feet and uh, so far so good. I've actually, scale hasn't changed, but I've definitely gotten a little bit leaner doing a little bit of cardio. I'm even doing some of it fasted just because that pisses everybody off. So <laughs> That's and, outstanding. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just very bro, man. I've been going through all my, my stuff from the 80s and the early 90s and, and just uh, going back to what used to work, seeing if it still does work. And so far, so good. But it's, it's a long haul. I'm going to try to do like 10 to 12 weeks. So we'll see how I do. Excellent. Well, that's, that's good timing. That's, that's yeah. not... Uh, it's not dragging it out for too long and be perfect timing for uh, for the summer coming up as well. That's right. What's your uh, what's your preference for cardio? Uh as, honestly as little as possible. Um and just I, I like incline walking on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. I mean and, and now the weather's improving so I'll probably start doing more of that outside. I really like that. I like morning walks, but I don't like, I don't like doing it when it's cold and snowing. I mean that's yeah. just torture. Um but yeah, but all the stuff like you know sprinting and stuff like that, I pr- I prefer to save that for when I'm in uh, more of a calorie surplus and and just focusing more on performance. Then like when I'm trying to lose fat and and get you know get into better aesthetic condition, I I like l- more uh, less stressful forms of cardio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you, man. That's that's definitely my thing. I love walking the dog. I wouldn't even consider that cardio, but it's a it's a pretty brisk pace and. We'll go for like 35, 40 minutes uh, most days of the week. Um, this week, I've been on the step mill twice. I don't even know what. Uh, well, mainly it's for my calves. It's been a good addition to my <laughs> calf training. It's, everything everything is revolves around my calf training right now. I've noticed that, man. You, everything's calves with you. I'm, yeah. I'm on a mission. I am on a freaking mission. I, if, if I can grow these things, I, I don't want to hear an excuse from anyone else. Uh, and so far, that's been going exceptionally well for me. I've hit them every freaking day, and uh, it's been it's been interesting. I mean, there's like once a week I'll hit them with really high volume and blast them, um, but the rest of the time it, it's pretty low volume. I've been doing utilizing that intraset stretching that we discussed in a previous yep. podcast, holding that stretch on the so doing my calf presses on a leg press machine, 45 degree angle, and holding that stretch at the end of a set for 30 seconds. That's been fantastic so doing that like twice a week um and then usually i follow that up the next day just like super low volume just do some like single calf presses with lightweight high reps just to get the blood pump into them and uh, like i've never really i've never been like really sore and debilitated and um one of my workout partners he he did one of the workouts with me he's like sore for days and days but he like never works his calves so uh, yet they're ginormous. <laughs> He's got huge calves and never trains them. Um, but yeah, I've been responding really well to it in terms of like handling the frequency. Um, 
and I've been bumping up the frequency with my training as well. I know in the last week, I was getting ready to start this new phase, this this high frequency project here. And I was gonna start off with that, the go-to upper lower push-pull leg split. Um, but after we did the first workout, the upper body workout, my workout partner and I looked at each other and we're like, both at the same time, like we both knew we were done with the the bro split. After 16 weeks of bro splits, we, we felt that the volume was, uh, we were ready yeah. to take a break from it. And then uh, after this first upper body workout or during that first upper body workout, we looked at each other because we're just doing like two exercises for yep. chest, back, shoulders, um, like three to four sets. And um, we're like, man, after two sets of that, we're like, that was perfect. Like, it felt good, gives you a, a, a decent little pump. Um, but we know that doing one more set uh, or one more exercise for three sets would just, it, it would kind of take it, us to the, that point of fatigue. And we're like, instead of doing that upper, lower, push, pull legs, let's let's go right to the upper, lower, upper, lower, upper, lower. So we're in the gym six times a week. We're, we're in a cutting phase right now. So I think being in the gym six days a week is is great. I can kind of, I don't feel like I have to do much cardio um, because yeah. I'm there so often. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been, there goes the phone. I should have got that out of here. Um, <laughs> it's been going really, really well. So the first upper lower split, we focused on like five to six reps. Yep. And the second upper lower split, we went with um, higher reps. We did myo reps and just some straight, God, I love those myo reps, man. <laughs> And then uh, like straight sets in the um, like 10 to 15 rep range. And then we're finishing off the week with um, kind of the, the, the hypertrophy range, like seven to eight um, repetitions. And it's been, uh, my body's responding to it well. I, I love the three times a week hitting each body part. Uh, we threw in buys and tries in that middle day. Um, so that was kind of uh, nice as well. Um, all in all, really excited for the change. My body's feeling fantastic, and um, it, it's it's a big it's a far cry from what I'm used to doing. So uh, it's been exciting. I think we'll from this split we'll we'll jump right into the five days a week for each body part and and give that a go as well. So it's been a fun ride. That's awesome, man. That's uh, that's quite a change. So you'll yeah, you, even just the mental break is so. Uh... You can sometimes get a little bump just from that. Just yeah. Do something completely different. And yeah, good for you, man. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I, I almost changed my mind again because uh, I saw some research uh, come out this week that was saying that. Because uh, oh, I've been. The reason I wanted to change is I was hearing so many guys say the benefits of high frequency training, train, hitting each body part more often throughout the week. And and then I saw more research come out this week that said it did as long as volume was equated, it didn't matter how whether you trained each body part once a week or twice a week. And it's like, oh god damn it, it's all just conflict. So I just went with my gut. So ah, fuck it, it's worth an experiment <laughs> anyways. And uh, this, in spite of the, all the conflicting research out there, um, I'm just gonna go with it and see how my body responds and use myself as my own lab experiment here. So. Absolutely, man. I I think, um, yeah. I I think that once a week frequency, like remember that I think it was the, the mid nineties or so. Like that was a super hot. Like just training each body part once a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I do think that's among the least effective, at least for me and 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 this, my circle of, uh, of of bros. But uh, certainly, yeah, two three times a week. I mean, you're you're just not gonna you're not gonna go wrong, provided you're 
sounds like you're changing things up regularly and that's that's what counts yeah 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 for sure so it's uh it's been good i'll be excited to report how things are going next week and right now i say it's time to uh get mike on with us here and uh see how his training has been i i noticed that uh, he posted yesterday he's out in boston right now uh, i think speaking at a conference and he's he's heading over to cressy performance and it sounds like he's going to be working out at some other gyms so really excited to hear how that experience is so mike welcome to the call I, i'd love to hear about uh, your experience at cressy gym and uh, what your what your training has been like overall yeah yeah thanks guys uh, great to be here and yeah, I'm actually out here in Boston right now. I'm out here for the Experimental Biology Uber Egghead Conference that was earlier in the week. And I've known Eric Cressy and, you know, those guys up there for quite a while. I remember Eric saying for years that, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're just out a little bit uh, outside of Boston. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm like, oh, I got to go train there somebody. That looks like a really cool place. Um, so I did a, a presentation on nutrition at uh, CrossFit Lowell, which turns out is farther outside of Boston than I thought, even though they considered themselves Boston. So I did that the night before and then just took an Uber cab all the way the hell out there and then took an Uber cab the next uh, morning over to Crest City Performance, which is actually in Hudson, Massachusetts, and got to train there, got there a little bit late, um, did some deadlifts. I just ended up doing some uh, block pulls from, it's probably like a you know, two, three inch, def, you know, uh, raised up a little bit. And that went all right. I haven't really trained much at all since I've been here. I was at the conference for you know pretty much the four days in a row. Did a little bit of the dude bra training in the, the hotel where the one I'm at now had one bench, a universal, uh, one, two, three pairs of dumbbells. So you have uh, two 10s, two 15s, and then a pair of 45s. <laughs> I don't know what happened to the other ones in between. Um, so... Yeah, so Cressy performance went good. Um, didn't do a lot there. Basically just did some rows, did a few pull-ups and that type of thing. And then I was supposed to go to uh, TPS last night. That was the plan. The two little catches with the plan was uh, Hudson, Massachusetts is kind of out in the sticks. And what I realized is Uber will take you wherever you want. <laughs> and it's not their responsibility to get you back to where you need to go because that's on you. And so I was hanging out at Greg's Road's place. It was nice enough to let me hang out for a while. And I keep looking on the little Uber app, and one car would be on there. It was the only car within like a 30-mile radius. I'm like, oh, crap, this sucks. And so I would hit the request, and I would watch it, and the car would disappear. Oh. I'm like, oh, <laughs> so he, he probably doesn't want to take me on a 51-mile you know, journey back to my hotel. So I'd wait a while, do it again, same thing happened. This sucks. So I, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll I'll take it. And so, long story short, I I got back to my hotel after a $92 Uber cab ride. <laughs> oh. Um, and so I was supposed to train at TPS, and then the one guy, Mike, I was supposed to meet there, his gym, and the basement, I guess, flooded on it, so he wasn't able to make it. So, long story short, I didn't uh, make it out there. Today I'm headed over to my buddy Steve's place who runs uh, Amp uh, Fitness in downtown uh, Boston. So, yeah, interesting, I guess you'd say at least. Exciting, well, man. What, Steve uh, Amp, that sounds familiar. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're right, right downtown Boston. They're actually not uh, too far from the convention center. So, okay. 
Okay. Right on. Yeah, yeah. and what, uh, what, what's the plan? Also at the same facility. Okay. What's the plan for training today then? I don't know. My other buddy James Heathers is supposed to be meeting there too. So I said, "Hey, you're you're the person in charge of training today. So teach me some cool stuff." <laughs> so he had mentioned something about a one arm power snatch, and I don't know what all. So oh it, uh, my goodness! Oh my I have god! Just bad habit of when I when I go to other sort of visiting places, I I never do sort of the same routine that I normally do, especially when you're around like you know so many other good coaches and stuff like that. I always mm-hmm. just tend to default to, okay, like just. I don't know, show me something cool or something different. Or I always uh-huh. feel like I want to learn something there. I can go home and have, you know, a good training session at home, but I'm probably not going to be, you know, with these people again. So if they can, mm-hmm. you know, teach me one thing or, you know, review form or whatever, I always think that's a, a little bit more beneficial. So, you know, workout quality, that type of stuff may drop. But I think in the grand scheme of things, if I pick up a few things, then it's definitely going to be worthwhile. Right. Oh, that's, that's a huge, man. I mean, I, the, I love that's what I love going to different gyms in different cities is yeah. I never you know if you can hook up with somebody else there and and yeah even if you come away with one new thing to add to your mix I mean that's that's I can be huge pay huge dividends yeah and I think the the default and it's hard to get out of the mindset too is that you you're like oh man I haven't trained for like three or four days you and on one level you want to get a, a good training session and that type of thing but mm-hmm. I also think that I'm probably not going to be training with these people for a long time you know that was like the first time I ever made it to crusty performance and stuff so you know, to have other people watch and just, you know, to see the, you know, environment and Greg and another guy there, Adam, or Adam was doing reps with like 600 pounds, I think, on the deadlift. You know, so just to sit there and watch that and you're like, wow, and it, it looks so pretty, too. It's like, damn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, do they do a mix of, like, I see they got some pretty sweet uh, trap bars there. Are they using the, the Olympic bars as well, doing all, all different forms of deadlifting or? Yeah, they had a, a deadlift party there, so I think they had every 45-pound <laughs> plate, literally like in the facility being used, because um, the uber-strong guys were on the other bar, and then I was working in with um, Tony and one other guy. I even took the chains off they had on, and I was only doing like 315 for you know, reps of four or five or whatever, and then another guy was using the trap bar, so like all the 45-pound plates were in use at, <laughs> That's awesome. at one point in time. What an experience. That's so cool. Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, it was, um, you know, a little bit nervous, too, because I just, I, I went to set up another bar next to him, and I'm looking around, and I'm going, oh, there's no extra plates here. So I did a one warm-up with 115. I'm like, hmm, okay, 315, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it went all right. It wasn't bad, so. <laughs> now, what's a, what's a normal week of training like for you? Yeah, normally, so I'll give you two answers. And normally I do more kind of strongman stuff. So the past year I've been doing a lot more uh, axle overhead, clean and press, uh, a fair amount of stones, so Atlas stones. So I train mostly in my garage at home. So I'm pretty lucky I've got a an axle that's, you know, a solid metal, two inches, you know, smooth surface. It's like 75 pounds without any weight on it. And then um, I've got some bumpers, so I pull them out into the middle of the street and do that outside. That's nice out, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, and then lately in fall, I kind of, long story short, from too much stress finishing my PhD and working too many jobs and all that stuff, kind of all this stress and all the stuff I tell people not to do for like two decades kind of <laughs> kind of <laughs> caught up to me. Um, so now I am went back and just fixing a lot of uh, mechanics, so... The short version is trying to get my pelvis so it's more neutral. So my low back tends to go into extension like all the time. 
So yeah. overhead lifting then was very limited. So in essence, I'm using my low back into extension to, to compensate for shoulder range of motion at the top. Uh-huh. And then for squatting, the same thing kind of what happened. I would shift more to my right leg instead of my left. So yeah, I yeah. give you some really funky stuff with that. Um, so working on fixing all the mechanics, uh, doing a bunch of uh, physical therapy through PRI, so postural restoration incorporated. I'm doing actually some vision uh, work to get my eyes to work better since I don't see in 3D. It's just kind of a whole nother story. And then you don't, I, you don't see I, in 3D. No, really? no, I'm what they call stereo blind, which sounds worse than what it is. Considering yeah. I still drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not well, um, but you still drive it. <laughs> yeah, it's as well is debatable. It probably fit in driving out here in Boston. Um, <laughs> so in, in essence, you've got one eye on each side, and eyes create an image, those two images go into the back of the brain and they're offset by just a little bit. And your brain then interprets that and says, hey, that's a 3D image. And in my case, the my right eye has a vertical and horizontal deviation. So the images are skewed and sort of pulled farther apart. So if I see both of them, I actually see in double vision because my brain can't fuse those images together. So the brain solution, which in one way is kind of cool, it says, okay, I'm just going to suppress one of the images from your right eye so that when the images go to your brain, you only have one image. And your brain says, aha, I don't see in double vision anymore. I fixed the problem because it doesn't want to be confused. Um, but th- what happens then is you don't have any, it's hard to explain. You don't have the standard depth perception. It'd be like if you were to walk around all day with one eye closed. I mean, you can see stuff, you know how far away things are, but that sort of innate. <laughs> Uh, sense of depth is just non-existent, which is what I'm told because I've never had it, so I don't know any different. So um, you're like so. that. Th- were you like that kid, like growing up when like someone would throw a softball at you and <laughs> always hit you right in the face because you just like couldn't. Oh yeah. To- <laughs> oh, entirely. Like if if you had to to pick me on a ball sport to be on your team, <laughs> you would play with like four people down. I mean, I was way more of a deterrent than I was helping <laughs> any method at all. Um, I hated, hated ball sports. Um, I would stand in the outfield and they forced you to play softball. And I would just stand there and go, oh, God, please don't let the ball come to me. Because it would, you know, go way up in the air. And those were the hardest ones because I'm looking in the air. I have no frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And it would either, like, just hit me in the skull or slap <laughs> on foot. No idea where the hell the thing was. So, yeah, very bad. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. So, because I know you're 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 very tall. You're like what six two, six three. Uh, six three. Yeah, that doesn't help yeah. either. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. So, um, that's not. Yeah, and then if you if you want to go further down the rabbit hole, when I was um, four and a half, I had uh, open heart surgery for an atrial septal defect. So oh. your heart's got uh, a septum, so dividing between oxygenated and deoxygenated blood. Uh-huh. And when you're born, those basically fuse shut. So that you do not have oxygenated and deoxygenated blood mixing together. So in my case, the hole between the top chamber of the heart, between the atrium, never closed. And so I had the blood basically mixing back and forth all the time. So in my heart, when I was like four, I had heart failure. So I was the size of someone who should have been 18 at that point. Because it becomes so inefficient, the heart tries to get bigger to make up for that inefficiency difference. So I went in... Yeah, it was 1978, so there's only a handful of places that did uh, open heart surgery on, you know, basically pretty young kids at that time. 
went in and just uh, stitched it shut. Wow. But if you think about all the development periods you go through from, you know, age, you know, when you're born to even like four in terms of motor movement, high speed movement, all that kind of stuff, I couldn't really run up a hill without being just utterly exhausted. So I didn't really do a lot of movement, you know, on top of that. And then you add, you know, an eye issue. When they took me to the eye doctor, I guess I said, the eye doctor is like, hey, there's this little dog here at the end. Um, what do you see? And I guess I told my parents, I said, oh, well, I see two of them, but only one of them's real. <laughs> you, you interact with your environment, you figure out real fast which is sort of the false image and which is the real image. Um, so, yeah, so, you know. All sorts of interesting developmental stuff. Wow, very <laughs> yeah, interesting way to start life. Holy smokes. Yeah, and oh. the weird part is I didn't, you know, figure out a lot of this until probably like 10 years ago or so. You know, and you go back and you learn stuff. And I finally went back to my eye doctor when I, I realized this. And I said, you know, all those 3D tests you've been giving me for like every year I've been for an eye exam. It's like, yeah. I said, I've failed those every single year, haven't I? He's like, Yeah. I said, well, why didn't you bother to tell me? <laughs> He's like, well, you know, there's not much you can do about it, whatever. So I'm like, okay. So it's amazing for something as simple as that. I mean, it's a very simple eye screen. They, they do it in eye exams all the time. But if the you know, eye doctor isn't trained in that field or has someone to refer you to for you know, vision therapy and that type of thing, a uh, behavioral optometrist, it's like, oh, you know, no big deal, whatever. I'm like, no, it's, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's bad. So strong, that's amazing. So strong yeah, man ahead. training. That must be a great way to, like, you must be able to get a ton of variety in there. Yeah, and that's kind of why I went and did it. I had, you know, I'd done some powerlifting stuff in the past and was yeah, never very good at it. I mean, in, in high school, my goal when I went to college was not to get crushed by the bar. You know, that mm-hmm. <laughs> was like my, my big goal. Um, and then I hadn't, you know, first deadlift I ever did was not until my second year of college and it was, you know, 95 pounds and you're like, Oh boy, you know? Um, so yeah, so I like strongman just because of the, the variety. I get kind of bored easy. Um, so you can do all sorts of stuff from, you know, stone ones. You can do axle, obviously deadlifts and that type of thing. Um, I also do a lot of odd object sort of lifting. So one of my main goals in a couple of years is to, I uh, lift the Dinny Stones, if you're familiar with that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There, yeah, yeah. So over in Scotland, for people who don't know, it's very large stone in the front, smaller stone in the back, and they've got a handle in each one. So there's a big ring in the front, smaller ring in the back, and to do it, you have to stand in a straddle formation over it, and then you actually have to rotate and put your left hand behind you, right hand in front, and it's a partial deadlift, but it's just a so you're off axis, the back stone will come up first because the handle is shorter. So now you've got an off axis load from a rotation position and the ring tends to just cramp the hell out of your hand. So a lot of the limiting factors, the, the grip strength, because the ring, when you put your hand around, is trying to basically bend your hand back the other direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so this stuff like that to me is, is fun. So <laughs> it sounds crazy functional. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's it's one of those things where you look at it, and McGill's probably going to pass out if he ever sees a video of it. But in in general, <laughs> there's you're moving from a fixed position, so it's not like your lumbar is really <clears throat> rotating under this heavy load. Um, mm-hmm. But it is definitely an, an off-axis position. I mean, even Atlas stones, right? Because you're mm. you're literally doing a rounded back deadlift. Yeah, yeah. 
which everyone was, oh my God, never do that. That's like the worst thing ever in the world. And so when I started doing them a couple of years ago, I just took like this super light stone, you know, just 150. I just started just doing very easy reps with that, you know, complete rest. It wasn't that I couldn't muscularly lift anything heavier. Deadlift at that time is probably low 400s. Um, but I knew that my soft tissue had not been in that position with that amount of tension underneath it. Uh-huh. I think if you start without using tacky or without using the smooth side, so I did everything to make my grip that much harder because yeah. I knew that that would be a limiting factor because otherwise you start adding your ego and all that stuff in there. And that's probably a really good one where if you're okay at deadlifting, you could probably, and your grip open hand is pretty good and you, you know, put a bunch of tacky or something on it, yeah. you can probably override it enough to where your soft tissue now is not going to be able to handle that load. Um, so I you know, purposely took like a year, you know, just to, you know, scale myself up to the moderately heavy load, 220. I think I did one rep to lap with like 250. Um, So just on purpose to make sure that my soft tissue could, you know, support the loads in that position and that type of thing. Well, I know I, when I was moving, and I moved across the continent, Yeah, up to Canada there, eh? (laughs) Yeah, up to Canada, (laughs) from the big city, I... I, I did a pit stop in Minneapolis and hooked up with uh, uh, Jen Sigler and her husband Dave Delnave. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, and Mike came down and we we did a little workout and I was a, just a total mess because of moving stress and oh and, yeah. And I you did a lot of some some cool testing on me. I just uh, I recall half of them I couldn't do because my, <laughs> <laughs> like my back was seized up. But uh, yeah, you had some you did some interesting range of motion testing. If you want to go into that, that's it was kind of, I found a very uh, applicable to a bro. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I found over the years is that, so as your structure becomes more asymmetric, so my structure is pretty asymmetric because of, um, so basically they cut your chest open in midline when you're like four. And so when you grow, no matter how well they try to put it back, it's going to be offset a little bit. And, you know, scoliosis and all that stuff. What you find from a developmental standpoint is that people are very visually orientated and that makes sense. And if your eye position is kind of up and out, you, you develop around the position of your head and every structure underneath it, trying to keep your vision set and stable. So your, your brain will sort of sacrifice body position in order to see the world the way that it should see it. So I had a massive head tilt and that kind of stuff. So you fast forward through when I started doing some powerlifting stuff, you know, bench, squat, deadlift. Deadlift was okay. Bench press, eh, so-so. Uh, squatting was always just horrible. Um, <laughs> and so adding a highly symmetric load to an, you know, not symmetric structure, probably not a lot of good's going to come of that. Um, so I did some uh, testing through Z Health in the past, uh, through some stuff through the guys at the movement. And what we found is it's by doing a simple uh, flex forward bend, so just a range of motion test, you can determine which movement may be better for your body. So, for example, if you're going to do sumo deadlifts or conventional deadlifts, and your goal is just to add some muscle, add some strength, you know, burn some fat, probably doesn't matter that much from a, a load standpoint and that type of thing. You're applying a heavy compound load to your body. But structure-wise, there's a pretty big difference from the position of the hips and the angle of the torso and all that kind of stuff. What you find is that some people do much much better pulling sumo. Some people do better pulling conventional. So by doing a range of motion test, you can then determine on more of the mechanics uh, side which one of those is going to be better. What I found over the years of you know just working with other clients and stuff too, 
is that a lot of them have you know compromised range of motion in their shoulders, which is very common, um, <laughs> the hips, all that kind of stuff. And if you're so in my case, my overhead axle press, I had never done much overhead pressing in the past because uh, people said, oh, it's horrible. It's you know you should never do that. You know, never mind. It used to be sort of a a tested lift years ago and got to a little bit too extreme, so they couldn't judge it anymore. That's why they dropped it. Um, and then I worked on some shoulder stuff was better. And then about last July, it just would not go any further. And what I found, as I mentioned, I was compensating through low back extension to get the end range of motion. And so you can mean go all the way down to testing uh, hip range of motion in different positions. And the key to all that is that acutely doing a lift or doing an exercise will change the range of motion that your body will willingly give you. And so if you're, and so I'm not a big fan of static stretching, you're always trying to force your body into some end range of motion that it doesn't want to go in, you're probably just not doing anything to help it. But if you do a specific exercise or maybe you do some breathing drills or whatever that allows your body to get back to a better position, you usually find that as a unit, your range of motion just increases for the most part. Um, so, you know, every exercise can make you better or worse. You're just trying to find the ones that, you know, slowly make you better over time. And you may end up with just bizarro looking weird combinations, you know, Jefferson deadlifts to, you know, off axis stuff, um, a B stance deadlift. So you've got one foot that comes up a little bit, like a staggered stance to different positions, but those may actually be better uh, for you than the standard ones. Wow. Interesting. Definitely. Um, Another thing that uh, a lot of people might know you from is your writing on metabolic flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's something I find really, really cool. So how about uh, about you go into that for us? Sure. So I started researching metabolic flexibility, oh man, it's probably almost nine, yeah, about nine years ago now. I fled out of the uh, PhD program I was in for biomedical engineering. Uh, before I did a Bachelor of Arts and I did a Master's actually in mechanical engineering, so more biomechanics type stuff. And I got really tired of math. So and I you know, spent all my free time you know, looking at exercise physiology, uh, went to conferences on it. I remember going to a conference in Arizona, like one of the first ones, like eons ago. I remember sitting down, I'm like all excited, and I asked the person next to me, I said, hey, have you, have you seen the study on this, this, or that? Kind of look at me, and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, what about this study on this, this, and that? And they're kind of staring at me, and they're like, well, who are you? What are you, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I came here to you know, learn about exercise physiology. And they're like, oh. I said, well, what do you guys do? I said, oh, you know, we work as trainers. I'm like, oh, okay. I said, well, don't you guys read research? And they're like, no, we don't read research. <laughs> like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I ended up doing a PhD in exercise physiology. Um, got there the first day, and I had went over there to avoid math. And my advisor walks in. He's like, all right, we got two new projects. Uh, one of these is on metabolic flexibility. The other one's on heart rate variability. And they both involve a lot of math. And he looks <laughs> around the table at everyone. And I'm like sitting at the very end. He's like, hey, math boy, these are, these are your problems now to figure out. I'm like, oh, got to be kidding me. I came here to avoid math and all I get is math. Um, so the whole crux of it was to try to figure out um, mathematically what is a better marker for metabolic health. So we can have all these sort of surrogate markers and stuff and we can you know poke you with IVs and do lots of complicated testing. 
But can we use just sort of standard um, testing, in this case a metabolic heart, uh, to determine uh, metabolic flexibility? The metabolic flexibility is your body's ability to use fats and also use carbohydrates. And it seems like it's just the world's most simple concept, probably because I've been looking at it for way too long. And you, you see all these debates online about, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, you got to use carbs all the time, man, because that's what powers high-intensity exercise. And then the other group is like, no, no, low-carb diets are the best, you know, if you're trying to lose weight and all that kind of stuff. And the reality is you want to do both, right? I mean, when, you, when you go to the gym, you want the ability to use carbohydrates to lift and to increase your performance and all that kind of stuff. But when you're at rest and just, you know, hanging out, doing whatever, you don't want to use carbs at that point. You actually want the ability to use fat. And so metabolic flexibility is how do you switch back and forth between those two. And what you okay. find in diseased populations like type 2 diabetics, that they tend to lose the ability to use carbohydrates. But what's underappreciated is that over time as the disease progresses, they actually lose the ability to then use fats. So they get sort of stuck only in this middle range. And so metabolic flexibility is the, the opposite of that. And so the research I was doing was just trying to determine uh, what things alter it, and then can we find sort of a mathematical way to measure that. And I, I just published a study on that in JSCR, actually this month, I think it's ahead of print still. And it just showed that the method we came up with is repeatable. You know, hopefully I'm, I'm working with some other people to show that, you know, it may be a marker for uh, metabolic health and that type of thing. But has to be determined yet. Interesting. So, um, okay, so for the layperson, or not, not the layperson, the lay bro. Do the, uh, the <laughs> broad translation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, because I know this is something that always gets up Scott's ass a little bit, is the, is the concept of, uh, of not eating carbs uh, before training. Um, yeah. You know, and always, fat, bro. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you can't have carbs for breakfast or before training. You're gonna fall asleep in the middle of your workout type thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's and I'm actually a, a a big proponent of actually having carbohydrates before training. And you can get into all the timing studies later and all that stuff. But a simple fact, right? That if you take um, so I always tell people that if you don't have the ability to use carbs, your training is going to be severely impacted. So if you look at a disease called McArdle's disease, they can't use muscle glycogen. They can't use carbohydrates. They're severely impacted for high-intensity exercise. Um, and that's an extreme case. So I tell people that you want to do everything possible to enhance the performance of that training session. Right? So the better performance you can get, obviously you're going to burn more calories, have a better stimulus to add, you know, more muscle and that type of thing. And <clears throat> most people do better with carbohydrates around the time of their training. The only group that I've seen that that doesn't happen <clears throat> is actually usually the people who have been on a very, very low carbohydrate diet. Oh my God, you know, that apple I saw that has evil carbohydrates in it and I got to avoid those. And in those cases, you actually start to lose the ability to use carbohydrates very efficiently. Uh, there's like three studies now that have shown that. And in those people, if you give them just a crap ton of carbohydrates, I usually report, oh, man, I get sleepy. I don't do very well. Um, so with that group of people, I tell them to you know, have some carbohydrates, but time it about halfway through your training session. So at that point, all the, the counter-regulatory hormones are higher, epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol, blah, 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 blah. All yeah. that in English means that you're much less tired, much less likely to get sleepy and tired at that 
that point. And then just slowly bring those you know, more forward in your training. Most people report that their performance is better. And if you want to get into the really uh, dude bra science of getting a better muscle pump, which is cool, um, insulin is actually one of the main uh, vasodilators. Mm-hmm. So instead of spending a crap ton of money on arginine and whatever other product, just have a bunch of carbohydrates and, and protein. You know, Insulin levels are going to go up. And mm-hmm. insulin is actually used as one of the main uh, dilators of local uh, muscle blood flow too. So, yeah, I've I've never understood why people kind of go out of their way, take all these vasodilators and, and stuff. You could just increase your carbs pre workout if yeah. if your if your goal is a pump. I mean that and drink a yeah. lot of water. <laughs> yeah, water mm-hmm. movement. I mean a little bit of salt and a bunch of carbs, mm-hmm. and yeah, most of the time you're you're pretty good. I mean mm-hmm. the. Uh, studies on oral arginine are just that's don't don't really do anything. You need ten to fifteen grams, and you'll have severe gastric issues if you do that. So, <laughs> not the best for your gym performance. No, <laughs> or your buddies in the gym. <laughs> nope. Yeah, Maybe fun to entertain Brian with that when he, he comes out. Oh yeah, bunch yeah. <laughs> yep. of arginine and send him off into the gym. <laughs> hey man, I'll do it. I don't mind. <laughs> um, oh, go ahead. How, Scott. Uh, yeah. So, how about metabolic adaptation? What? Uh, how do you uh, distinguish that? So, what's the, the the difference? Metabolic flexibility and metabolic adaptation. So, it, is this a term mostly used when people are in caloric deficits? If they drop the calories too low, do they kind of stabilize at that point, or? Um, shed some insight into that. Yeah. So metabolic adaptation, or sometimes you've heard the word metabolic damage, which mm-hmm. makes it sound like it got hurt and can never repair itself again. Um, it just shows you that your metabolism will actually change over time and changes depending upon the amount of calories you take in. So a lot of people assume that your metabolic rate is just purely kind of fixed. And we know from studies that if you take in more food your metabolic rate actually does increase. Now, it may not increase enough that you burn off all those calories and don't gain any weight. At some point, you know, that's going to kind of even out. Um, But it actually does go up. And for anyone who's done, you know, dieting, bodybuilding, and figure that type of thing, they know that the reverse is also true. So as you start taking in fewer calories, your metabolic rate then starts going down. The issue then is, well, how far down does it actually go? Um, so you'll hear sort of anecdotal self-reports of people, I'm only eating, you know, 500, 600, 800 calories a day, and I can't lose any weight. And what I find interesting then is, if I, so I went looking to see what kind of data there is. And when you look at the data for metabolism, you find that most of your resting metabolic rate, which is about 50%, maybe even 60% of the total daily energy expenditure, um, is resting metabolic rate. So if you drop that really low, obviously very hard to lose weight. The question then is, well, how low could you really drop that? And I, anecdotally from talking to people and from what's been reported in the literature, you know, right around probably no lower than a a thousand, maybe 800 at the absolute lowest, doesn't seem to go down any lower. Because if you think about it, at some point, you can't have your metabolism go to zero, right? You'd be dead. <laughs> so it, it, there seems to be some sort of baseline number that it doesn't want to really go down much from that. 
Um, and so some people will say, well, I think my you know metabolic rate's 500 or 600 or whatever. Doesn't appear to be any you know science to support that. The catch, though, is that most of the science stuff is going to look at sort of the average person. Once in a while, we get some people that exercise in studies. You know, they're not really looking at you know people that do extreme things for you know figure or physique and that type of thing. Um, so I know a couple of labs now that are are looking at just trying to get some measures on these people because I've talked to a bunch of them and I'm like, just just grab a couple of them who are self-report. Just hook up a resting metabolic rate on them. Where, where are they? You know, are can we find someone that's at seven hundred? Um, so far, we haven't. Doesn't mean they don't exist. Um, so there's a big debate about how much of that you know is a factor in that type of thing. And the, the takeaway from all of it, that's from I said more practical knowledge, is that a lot of people probably need to spend more time on expansion and less time on restriction. Right, so if you're you know staying even on 1,200 calories per day, and you're like, oh man, I want to lose some weight, what are you going to go to like 800 calories a day, 600 calories a day? You know, you, there's not really anything to cut from. Mm-hmm. But if you spend a period of time and you increase your performance, you slowly and methodically increase the amount of food you're taking in, you're training more often, and you get up to you know let's say 2,800 calories. And yeah, you may gain a little bit of weight during that time, probably gain some muscle, probably going to gain a little bit of fat. And now you decide, okay, I'm going to try to cut down a little bit. Well, now you actually have somewhere to go, mm-hmm. right? So you yeah. cut down 800 calories to get to 2,000. That's pretty sustainable to do 2,000. You know, obviously you can want to be a little bit higher, but you know, 2,000 is way more sustainable than 800. And it's like I ate 900 for breakfast this morning, I think, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I think people need to, one, look at the, the, the big picture. And I understand that if people are doing more extreme things to, to step on stage and that type of thing, and that's going to be sort of a temporary state. I, I understand all that, and I help some of those people. Um, but I think the average person needs to spend a little bit more time on the expansion. And even in the extreme cases of you know, figure and physique and bodybuilders, you know, a lot more of the ones I'd say that are doing it more intelligently now are taking like you know natural competitors one to two years sometimes between shows, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. to give themselves time to get back to a normal state to try to increase as much as they can from there, and then you know slowly try to you know cut down from there, instead of trying to keep doing repeated show after show after show, and a lot of those people get you know very burnt out. Um, I do it, some stress markers on them from HRV. The stress is very very high. And that the second you step off the stage, your stress just doesn't miraculously resolve to zero. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's going to be there for a while, and you, you need to, to deal with that. Now, do you recommend a nice a slow and steady approach? Like, should you start off with a smaller deficit and, and see how, how you progress with that and then start to drop it a little lower if you need to? Or would you recommend starting like a, a larger deficit and then kind of reverse taper right out of the gates. So you have more fat on your body. Yeah. Um, you're able to pull from those fat stores and then start to build up from there. What do you use both approaches or, or do you like one over the other? Yeah. In a, in a perfect world, I'd actually do a combination of both. Right. So perfect world meaning that, you know, you've got say a competitor who's in pretty good shape already. I'll actually go, what is the slowest amount I can cut or remove from them and still see pretty good progress? Because um, I want, I know at some point it's going to come down to a, a low number, right? So in the case of a physique or figure competitor. So I want to go with the minimum amount to still see um, progress. And in a perfect world, 
we would go down as far as we can so they're you know pretty ready and then you would sort of you know reverse diet or whatever word you want to use associated with that actually back into their show so before their show they're actually at a state of slightly starting to increase um, calories and that type of thing. Right. And I mean, they're not going to gain a lot of weight or fat or anything in that uh, period. Obviously, you're watching their body composition, but usually they feel a lot better. And from a physiologic standpoint, you're you're trying to resolve a little bit of that stress, right? So mm-hmm. from a pure aesthetic standpoint, we know that uh, cortisol attracts a lot of water. So if you're you know stressed out of your mind, and that's both physiologic and mental. You may not look as well or as good as someone who has a much lower state of stress, you know, given the same conditions and leanness and that type of thing too. Interesting, and uh, I, I'm I'm firmly convinced that, it, and probably everyone else would say this too, that it's much more of a, an issue with with women doing back to back shows. I don't know. If Usually, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and now, how about, how about someone who has like a hundred pounds to lose? Would you still take a nice, slow and steady approach with them? Same idea, or yeah. would you be a little more aggressive in the beginning? Yeah. So with that, I, I'd actually, and, and I don't work with a lot of those people, but there it usually depends more on their mindset, I guess you could say. Because mm-hmm. some people, and, and you can be a lot more aggressive with them, you know, unless they're an outlier and they're just you know not eating a lot. Uh, and get some other issues but in general they're probably eating a, a fair amount um, so you can be a lot more I would say aggressive with that um, but even then knowing that it's going to be a longer period so you can be more aggressive and then kind of taper off a little bit be a little bit more aggressive and that type of thing mm-hmm. a lot of that I think comes down more to their mindset too because for some people it's like if they don't see a lot of progress it becomes very demotivating for them right away. Right. So if you maybe do more of an extreme a little bit at first, you know, to get them going in the right direction, they see a fair amount of weight loss, that type of thing. Then you maybe back off a, a little bit from there, that type of thing. I don't know. That would be my guess with that. I don't work with a lot of those people, mm-hmm. but most of the literature would show that you can be more aggressive with that population and you're probably going to be okay. What are your guys' thoughts? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the more you have to lose, the more aggressive you can be. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, interesting. I, so uh, I, I am kind of, I'd like to hear a little bit more like if you, do you like, uh, how, how do I put this? Uh, how would you design a diet, say, for, you know, using the metabolic flexibility principles for, um, for like, a, say, a bodybuilder, someone who wants to lose fat? Oh, sure. Yeah, the the big thing with that, I find, and you know, this gets into all the debates about nutrient time and all that kind of stuff. But I find that the lower their carbohydrate amount, the more you can put that around or even during their training, they tend to use it a lot better. And their performance in training is a lot better. Because, you know, as you get very low in calories, your performance is going to tend to, to drop off. So what it looks like from a meal standpoint, I do like having... Most of their meals be protein-based, you know, some fat, some veggies, a little bit of fruit here and there. Theory being you're trying to get a little bit lower level of insulin. And then before training, you'd have usually more like high glycemic type carbohydrates or liquid carbohydrate like Vitargo. Some type of usually whey protein works really well. I have that both before and during. And a normal meal afterwards that's, you know, a little bit higher in carbohydrates, you know, sweet potatoes, white rice, you know, the standard old school bodybuilding type fare. 
And the rest of their meals throughout the rest of the day would be, you know, higher protein, lean meats, you know, some fat, mostly vegetables. It doesn't look that different than sort of the, the old school bodybuilding templates that you see all the time. Yep. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to upregulate the use of fat at the time away from training and then obviously overnight when they're fasted. But you still want to have more of the carbohydrates around training so they still have that increased uh, stimulus, the ability to burn calories, to retain muscle, possibly add a little bit of muscle. And the, this all sort of fits into an overall template of what is their total amount of calories and what is their total amount of carbohydrates. So in general, I have people fixed around 0.7 to 1 gram per pound of body weight for protein. And then their carbohydrate amount will vary a lot. So if it can be higher, that's going to be better. And those carbs may be spread out a little bit more over the day with the bulk being around training and that type of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Just kind of depends on the individual. And in a perfect world, you'd want people to stay as high on carbohydrates as they can and then not have much of a drop you know, as they get closer to a show. And you know that'll vary a lot. I mean, I had a, a figure competitor who was very, very lean. Um, you know, not real tall, so it's a little bit smaller. And, you know, she was at 250, 300 grams of carbohydrates, you know, three, four weeks out from a show. You know, someone else wow. who has much bigger, much bigger muscle mass, eh, like 150, yeah. you know. So it, it, I've just noticed that with carbohydrate amount, there seems to be a really wide, you know, variation in tolerance from one to the next. Um, and the lower you go on carbohydrates, I think the more you can, bracket them around your training time, people just seem to do a lot better. And what are some of the signs? Like how can you tell when someone is handling a certain amount of carbs? Like do you start at a certain baseline and then lower them a bit or try to increase them a bit? Um, what's kind of a procedure that you go through? Yeah, so I wish there was a better <clears throat> starting number. But what I do is I just take a three-day dietary recall and I, I just start from that number. So if they've been weight stable, and you can argue about eh, three-day diet recalls, eh, good or bad, whatever, but that's pretty close to wherever their body wants to be at if they're weight stable. And so then I would ask them, is it more of an off-season where we're going to try to you know, really expand out as much as we can? If they're you know, at the point where they can start to cut down, their calories are pretty good, and they've spent some time doing some expansion, then I always have them track uh, body composition and then their performance. So I'm, with my own clients, I'm pretty notorious about having them log everything that they do in the gym. I entered into a database. Uh, Dave Delnave has one called Adaptifier, which I use. And that tracks what weight they use, uh, how much volume, and also density. So how long it took them to perform that work. So I want to make sure that that is staying good. You can even track RPE to see you know what they perceived the work to be. And then I'll slowly start lowering probably carbohydrates the most because um, their fats in general are relatively low protein in general you know stays kind of fixed but I don't really want to get to the point where I've cut their carbohydrates so much that their performance starts dropping so in a perfect world you would get you know performance is still staying pretty good maybe up until only like a few weeks before their show and carbohydrates you know may end up being you know 200 250 at that point you know they may be 120 um, you know, per day on average. Uh, I rarely have any people that go below 120, rare circumstances. Um, and then just, you know, weekly report, you can do a waist measurement, pictures, whatever method you want to use to assess um, body composition. And I'm trying not 
to reduce them, but still see fat loss and still see performance. So it's pretty rare that I would drop someone pretty aggressively on carbohydrates in a short period of time and unless something's really off. So it's kind of a little bit more slow and steady and you're trying to find that sort of perfect point where enough carbohydrates and enough protein that the performance is still good, they're still holding on to lean body mass, but you're also trying to you know, get out enough calories, energy, that they're still seeing the fat loss results that they want. Like, would you say though that at the when the rubber hits the road, it's still like the total amount of energy that they're ingesting at the end of the day, uh, or would you oh, say, yeah. okay, like, but is, is it like a sliding scale? Like, as you get, you know, say closer to a peak date, that all of a sudden, you know, things like, um, you know, like uh, timing and such become more important, or is it always like total energy? is kind of rules the roost and everything else is kind of subordinate to that like how would you yeah yeah so you get all the the calories in calories out and i mean I, 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 yeah i guess ahead. what i'm saying like for for a really big person who has no idea what the hell they're doing i mean they just basically have to get a calorie deficit first and then worry about this other stuff later yep but someone yeah but someone who's like a little higher along and you know maybe they are in pretty good condition and want to get to peak condition would you say this becomes a lot more important or yeah, so the, the general sort of caveats I give people, if so if I just take a wide swath of people, right? So the old elevator speech, right? And you only have like 30 seconds to answer their question. In that case, <laughs> I would say focus on quality of food first, quantity second, timing probably third. And then everyone on the internet loses their goddamn minds because <laughs> they're like, oh my god, he said quality first. And the, if it fits your macros, people come out of the woodwork and send you hate mail and stuff. Um, but the reason for that for the average person, and then I'll address your competitor question, is if you just eat higher quality food, you automatically eat less. right? If you start eating a, a gram per pound of body weight in protein, I can almost guarantee that your total calories you take in are probably going to go down right? compared to you know, large Slurpees from 7-Eleven with no ice. Right? So you're, you're probably just going to eat less. So you've sneakily kind of controlled calories, right? So I had a, a client about a year ago, she emails me and she's like, oh, I got a problem. I'm going, oh, okay. And she's like, I'm losing weight and I'm feeling full all the time and this seems really weird and I don't <laughs> like it. And I emailed her back, I said, well, okay. So you're, you're <laughs> let me understand this. You're losing weight, so you're happy with your results. You feel full most of the time and you think there's something wrong. She's like, yeah, because it never works this way before. <laughs> like, but that's kind of what you want to do, right? I mean, you know, you, that would be sort of the perfect scenario. So if you eat a higher quality food in general, you're much more likely to have that happen. If you're more advanced you know, and you're much better about controlling uh, what you eat, you generally eat you know, higher quality foods, you know, not all the time, but in general, mm -hmm. then I would say, yeah, you know, quantity probably matters a little bit more than quality because you're much better at controlling your quality already. So you've kind of have that sort of established. The, the catch to all this too is that if you look in the studies, they normally only measure body weight. A lot of times they don't measure body composition. So you can do, you know, like the Twinkie diet, right? You can do all sorts of stuff to just dramatically slash calories and you may lose a bunch of lean body mass in that equation, especially if your protein is real low and you're not resistance training. So, But I think if your protein is high enough, you do some form of resistance training, 
you can be probably pretty aggressive for a short period of time, um, and it'll still it'll still mm -hmm. work. So all that to say that yeah, I mean calories you know do matter because I get all sorts of hate mail because I talk about insulin and they're like they're losing their minds with the insulin stuff and that I think if you only have 100 grams of carbohydrates, if you move them around the time of your training, you're going to be able to still train relatively well as opposed to not having it around that time. So I think it's more an efficient use then. Yeah, you must get some hate mail when people know <laughs> <laughs> about all sorts of stuff. It's just. And it's usually from the random person you've never met. You don't even know who they are, you know. And it's just, yeah, it's it's bizarre. And so I even asked them. I said, "Well, what was? Where did I say this? What was the quote?" And you get some weird quote that you're like, "You're like, I don't know. I think it was this." And they repeat it, and you're like, "I never said that." <laughs> <laughs> like the bad telephone game. Uh, it's nuts. Yeah, people have to pick on, jump on one little thing, pick something apart, and they're just, I don't know, some people just like to freaking argue on, on the internet as well. Just, I don't know, drives me nuts. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. And as I always ask people, I said, well, did you try it? What did you find? Hmm. I don't know, I don't, I haven't tried that. Well, well okay, but, well, maybe you should try it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's not 14 studies to support that, you know, and then, then you end up in the middle between being the applied person. So a lot of the research people are like, oh, but you don't have, you know, the 200 studies like I do. And I've got an email from coaches that are like, but you don't have 15 years experience coaching people every day in the gym like I do. I'm like, no, I don't. I never said that I did. And if I started tomorrow, you'll still have 15 years more of coaching people in the gym than mm -hmm. I will. So yeah, you win. You know, I don't know. What do you, <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> Yeah, that's I just I've never understood how people can argue against food quality. I mean, yeah, I get it like, you know, total calories obviously is it, you know, you know, it's hugely important, possibly the most important, but are you honestly arguing that food quality doesn't matter? I mean, how is that? I don't know. Maybe I'm yeah. just, maybe I just lack the intellect to pick up what they're dropping down, man, cuz I just and, <laughs> Yeah, there's Yeah. And I yeah. I understand the, the, some of the if it fits your macros viewpoint mm -hmm. that and I, the part that I do like about that is that they're not overly restrictive, right? It's like, don't think right. of a pink elephant. If I told you, Brian, never eat a Pop-Tart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pop-Tart. Yeah. Pop <sighs> you know, so I, I think by trying to not be as restrictive, it prevents people from being really, quote unquote, good and strict and clean on their diet for four weeks and then just, you know, having two days of an absolute bender where they lose their mind. That, yeah, messes, yeah. that messes with them and if you can have a pop tart every other day and that prevents this you know train wreck of you know things that are going to happen over three days i think that's that's probably just fine right but if you're trying to you know argue that a pop tart is better than a banana all the time i think you're kind of pushing it there i mm -hmm. mean to to me in terms of metabolic flexibility you want the ability to actually handle both so you want the ability to handle super high amounts of carbohydrates temporarily and to not, you know, pass out on insulin and do stupor and, mm -hmm. and still function. And the flip side, which freaks people out just as much, is you probably want to be able to go for a period of time fasted. I've even had people work up to 19 to 24 hours. I've gone up as high as 32 hours where you don't have any food coming in, you know, just, you know, water and that type of thing. And and that you still feel good and you want the ability to go back and forth between those. 
that doesn't mean that you hang out and live in one of those areas all the time. It just right. means that if you get to there, it's okay. You know, so currently I don't do much fasting, maybe once every three weeks. But yeah. I found that that's enough to maintain the ability that if I had to, I could go right now like 15, 19 hours. Yeah, I would be a little bit hungry. I would want to eat. But I could still function. I could get my work done. I could go train. It wouldn't be that big of a deal. Um, but <laughs> in the fitness world, people want to go one extreme to the next. And mm -hmm. yeah. I can almost guarantee you that this year, you will see people promoting more extreme fasting. 48 hours, 5 days, whatever. It, it, it'll probably happen because everything turns into a pissing match of some form. Oh, yeah. I did 37 hours. Screw you, I did 39. You know, so... <laughs> well, and it's just the amount of straw manning. Like, even with if it fits your macros, I mean, the you know the coaches who've had a, you know excellent success and kind of really gave that movement momentum. When you look at the the actual, uh, most don't hand out meal plans, but when you look at how they actually eat and advocate eating, it's basically a clean diet. It is just what <laughs> like you know clean in quotations. You know, just with yeah, like occasional indulgences worked into the calories. I mean, it's like. It's not eating Twinkies all day. Like everyone always jumps to that straw man. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, so so you're, yeah. So you're just saying I can eat Pop Tarts as long as my calories, you know, or blah 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 blah. It's like no, dude. No one's saying that. Yeah, and I think that's just because, and I'm entirely guilty of this too. You know, you always want to put up the the cool, fun food pictures on yeah. on Facebook. Oh, yeah. I had uh, chicken and broccoli again. Well, you don't freaking post that. <laughs> <laughs> post the, like I did the other day the whatever table full of food you had after you got done training you know because that's more fun <laughs> <laughs> I saw true, that true. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> oh that's great man well this has been awesome I've yeah. definitely uh, some great insights there I'm, I'm sure the people listening to this podcast are uh, really going to appreciate uh, the information you've shared with us It's uh, it's been a lot yeah, of fun thank man. you very much and um yeah, I didn't uh, hopefully piss on too many studies like Brian did last time he was on here. Dr. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> love it. Oh, like that's Brian. yeah, that's right. I was gonna yeah, maybe we'll save that. I was gonna ask you about some of the studies that uh, that, that that got forwarded to Scott that <laughs> that you and you and Dr. Chung pissed all over. And, oh yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. We'll, we'll save that. That may be in your new journal, there, Brian. <laughs> oh, the ass hat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I invite everyone to download their free copy of the Ass Hat. <laughs> it's an acronym. I forget what it stands for, but it's it's really it's full of science and whatnot. So yeah, you got it. <laughs> oh, that's oh. excellent. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Mike. Yeah, uh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. This is a good time. So thank you very much for having me. And again, people can just uh, go visit your website, mike.tnelson.com. Anything exciting coming up in the future? Anything? To oh, share? yeah. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, Doing a nutrition certification for Eat to Perform. So that's on their limited release, but around the second week for that. Uh, I do some stuff with the, more of the neurology side for Mindset, for Mindset Performance Institute. Uh, I'll be at the Kansas City Fitness Summit again coming up in May. I think there may still be a few tickets there with Ryan and a bunch of other guys. And that's always just an awesome, amazing weekend. Always a good time. And the Paleo effects and Texas and the ISSN meeting, a bunch of other stuff, and yeah, all good Excellent. stuff going on. Outstanding, man. Well, thanks again for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, great for me to get to know you a bit better, and uh, yeah, just some great information you shared today. Thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah, thanks, guys. Greatly appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Mike. <laughs>